Hello, and welcome to Meandering with Myrn, a potpourri of podcast by me, veterinary ethologist Myrn Milani. Join me as I ponder any and all things animal and human, what we know and what we don't, where we've been, where we are, and where we're headed. Would you kill an animal messenger? That sounds like the kind of question my animal-loving bioethics students would have loved or hated, depending on their personal views. But just pondering the answer also might cause others to focus any kill-the-messenger thoughts on the instructor who asked them to consider such a troubling question instead. Killing messengers bearing messages we don't want to hear is hardly a new human concept. Sophocles addressed the flaws in such thinking way back in the 4th century BCE. And it didn't stop Shakespeare's Cleopatra from lashing out at the messenger who informed her that Anthony, her lover, had married someone else. After hitting said messenger... Cleopatra threatens to unhair his head and have him whipped with a wire, then stewed in brine where he would smart in lingering pickle. All that punishment just for doing his job. Given Kill the Messenger's long history, despite all the evidence that disproves it works, it seems like some people today still haven't gotten the message. All those folks who swear at their screens when a newscaster or a social media post says something they don't agree with come to mind here. Such responses convince me that these and other people would respond the same way or worse to messages that come from mere animals. In fact, we see evidence of this all around us on a daily basis, too. If an animal, population of animals, or even an entire species does something we don't like, if they make us feel vulnerable and weaker in any way, we want to destroy them. When the animals become immune to our poisons and other attempts to kill them, some people even want to declare all-out war on them. These reactive folks have no interest in acknowledging anything good about these animals, let alone how these animals can tolerate conditions that we humans cannot. This awareness created a serious dilemma for me when I read a journal article about a wild animal that is a carrier and an intermediate host for coronaviruses. Intermediate hosts are those capable of supporting intermediate forms of microorganisms that then conclude their life cycle in some other final or definitive host. Additionally, but not really surprising, the animal carrier of and host for coronaviruses also possesses immunity to the viruses. 
Talk about an animal that has much to teach us, but also one guaranteed to fire up the fearful, kill-the-messenger types in today's emotional environment. As if this poor creature didn't arouse enough strong human emotions already, all species of these animals are critically endangered. As a result, much effort has gone into protecting the precious few remaining. But in a most bizarre twist of fate, one of the primary reasons for these animals' precipitous decline has nothing to do with fears about any dangers they pose to humans. Instead, they were being slaughtered for meat and medicinal body parts traditionally used to treat a range of human problems. The irony of this situation further convinces me that, contrary to any kill-the-messenger beliefs, humans are the most domesticated mammalian species and thus the most physiologically and behaviorally immature one. But most of us dog and cat owners seldom think of humans as members of a domestic species, let alone ponder the domestic human-animal behavior and bond effects associated with this. I suspect that this might have something to do with a common perception about Homo sapiens' relationship with animals. This perception maintains that we humans can't belong to domestic species because we're the domesticators. Domestication is something we do to members of lower species. However, this orientation loses its appeal when people become more familiar with the findings of the animal domestication studies. Once they do, they're more apt to consider themselves members of a domestic species because of neoteny. Neoteny refers to the retention of the more immature physiology and behavior that occurs in domestic animals compared to their wild ancestors that this would contribute to delayed maturity in those species, including our own, makes sense. But to those people who consider themselves masters of the universe relative to all the plants and animals around them, them's fighting words. Nonetheless, that there could be human and companion animal behavior and bond effects associated with delayed human, canine, and feline maturity is a given based on the domestication studies. These demonstrate how domestication sort of suspends other species and us in a state of physiological and behavioral immaturity. I say sort of because this is a dynamic state. For example, some domestic dogs from long-established, free-roaming, self-supporting lineage may mature much faster and display more maturity as adults than purebred dogs with equally lengthy lapdog lineage who may mature more slowly 
and display less maturity as adults when they do. This also makes sense if you think about it. The ancestral legacy of multi-generational populations of free-roaming dogs predisposed them to succeed in natural environments. Those environments have unpredictable weather, food and water supply, and predators, among other challenges. Though these dogs may have co-evolved in proximity to early humans, they didn't need humans to survive any more than the humans needed the dogs. Meanwhile, the ancestral legacy of lap dogs memorialized in centuries of artwork predisposed those animals to survive in a completely different kind of environment. They lived in human-controlled environments that championed animal dependency. Lap dogs with the looks and temperament of free-roaming ones capable of making it on their own wouldn't last long in drawing rooms and parlors. But in that human choreographed physical, mental, and emotional environment, the lap dogs more infantile, big eyes and floppy ears, shorter muzzles and smaller, cuddly bodies were the winners. Domestic cats also display the full wild lap cat range of behaviors and bonds with people that support these. However, and unlike free-roaming dogs, people seem more willing to accept that a significant number of cats are capable of surviving on their own in a wide range of environments sans human companionship. But although some people continue to have strong positive or negative prejudices for those in one group compared to the other, neither group is superior to the other's inferior. Like other wild and domestic animal species, all had and have the potential to benefit as well as undermine each other's welfare. And being only human, we had and have the potential to undermine or benefit human companion and wild animal welfare too. Like the highly endangered wild animal immune to coronaviruses, one of which brought the worldwide human population to its knees in a matter of months. At this point, I intended to reveal the animal's name in addition to referencing the pictures and a link to the journal article posted in the blog. All information that it wouldn't be that difficult for anyone determined to know its identity to discover. But I couldn't do it. These creatures already have been slaughtered to the point of extinction by people who saw evidence of their own human weaknesses in those animals' strength. Enough people would want to kill the animal messenger yet again. Fool's errand though it may be, I just can't contribute to that.
You've been listening to a podcast by veterinary ethologist Myrna Milani. For more podcasts, commentaries, and books about animal behavior and the human-animal bond, and links to behavior and bond sites, check out my website at www.mmilani.com. For more specific information, feel free to email me at mm.mmilani.com. All rights related to the content of these podcasts are retained by Myrna Milani. The background music, Molly on the Shore by Percy Granger, is used with permission from Katova Arts, www.katova.com.